good things for God's people. What particular good thing have we been talking about lately? Good things for God's people, we've said it's good to be afflicted. And I'm sure all of you have gotten that verse and put it on your refrigerator door now. It was good for me that I was afflicted, David said. How many of you know that it is good for us to experience affliction once in a while? I know faith teachers tell us that anytime there's affliction, it's got to be Satan. I want to tell you something. I read in God's word time and time again where God caused and God allowed tribulation and testing and trying trials to come upon believers. The trying of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, Scripture says. Trials and afflictions can cause us to realize over and over again how much we need to trust the Lord. You know, now that's what affliction can do in your life. You know, someone says you can't t enjoy the sunshine until you've experienced the clouds. You can't enjoy victory until you've had a battle. You can't enjoy the mountaintops until you've been in the valley. So there's got to be these experiences coming in our life. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have afflictions in, in this world. So we've talked about the eight facts about affliction. And then last week, the seven, or week before last, the seven purposes of affliction I gave you. And so tonight I want to talk to you about the five promises for saints who are experiencing affliction. Five promises from God's word to saints who are experiencing affliction. Some things that God will do for those who are experiencing affliction. You know, I'm not too worried about what I can do for God, but I'm really interested in knowing what God can do for me. And the world's the same way. They couldn't care less what you're doing for God most of the time. They want to know what God's doing for you. Someone gets healed. I still remember when I received the car years ago, that was buzzing all over. People coming up want to shake my hand. We'd be able to shake the hand of someone that God would give a new Cadillac to. If people are wondering what God's doing for you, there's some things that Scripture says God's going to do for those that are experiencing affliction. First of all, he'll hear them when he cries to them. If you and I are in affliction and walking with the Lord and affliction comes upon us, the Word of God says that the Lord will hear us. Turn to Job chapter 34, beginning with verse 21. He says he'll hear the affliction of the righteous. For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he will not lay, lay upon man more than right, that he should enter into judgment with God. He shall break in pieces mighty men without number, and set others in their stead. Therefore he knoweth their works, and he overturneth them in the night, so that they are destroyed. He striketh them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come unto him, and he heareth the cry, what? Of the afflicted. Lord hears the cry of the afflicted. I was just sharing tonight with someone that had a young man helping me put up the fence around Jody's playground area in the backyard, and my heart just aches when I see this family because... At one time, both the father and the mother were in a Pentecostal church and had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, were working and serving the Lord and busy in God's work and supporting the church and everything else. And they got angry at a pastor one time and left the church. And they just went downhill and backslid completely. And now I see all their children away from God. They've been in jail and out of jail. And, and one's in prison right now. And, and they've been uh, alcoholics. Uh, all three of, three of their boys have been alcoholics. And, 
and just one problem after another, but I think all of them now have been divorced and remarried at least once, some two and three times. And I think, you know, this is the very thing he's talking about here, the some that were with God and they turned their back on God and don't want anything more to do with his ways, how the judgment comes on them. The price they have to pay. It isn't just the mom and dad now. All the children have to pay, and their children and their children's children are going to pay and pay and pay. You know, the way of the transgressor, the word of God says, is very, very hard. But when someone who loves God is beginning to be afflicted and he cries out, God just wants you to know, I'll hear you. Call unto me, God says, and I'll answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. That's for the believer. That's the first thing. God will hear you. Secondly, he'll not only hear you, but he'll save you. You know, the word of God says that his ear is not heavy that he cannot hear, nor his arm shortened that he cannot what? Rescue or save you, yes. God not only hears, but he can also rescue, he can save you. Look at Psalm 18. Now, these are promises that you could hold on to in those times of, of affliction. Psalm 18, beginning with verse 25. With the merciful thou shalt thy, show thyself merciful. With an upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the forward thou wilt show thyself forward, for thou wilt save the afflicted people, but wilt bring down high looks. For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God I have leaped over a wall. As for God, his way is what? The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust him. For who is God save the Lord, or who is a rock save our God? It's God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. Now, notice there, he says that he will save you completely in times of affliction. But it's interesting how he afflicts. He says, if you're merciful, what? I'll be merciful. If you're just and upright and honest, I'll be just and upright and honest with you. You go right back to what Jesus said in the New Testament. Whatsoever you sow, that's how you also reap. So if you, if you sow corruption, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. That's why I keep telling people, be careful the garden you're planting. You can't sow wild oats and reap wheat. God will save them. Now, the thing I want to get across to you, that when God says he'll save you or rescue you, he doesn't always mean he's going to do it just like that. It means that God will do it, but God will do it when God wants to do it in his time. Now, let me give you some illustrations of this very quickly. First one is found in Genesis chapter 15. This is an amazing portion of scripture to me. When I look at it in the light, when you know, when you look back in hindsight, 2020 hindsight, but I imagine when they were going through it, they couldn't see it. Genesis 15, beginning with verse 13. And the Lord said unto Abram, I know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them. How long? Four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace and shalt be buried in good old age. But in the fourth generation... They shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God says, I'm going to judge the Amorites that are in the, the land. But he said, it's not time yet. God has a, How many of you know God has a perfect timetable? 
When I told you of George Washington's visions that he had, the three visions, and two of them did come to pass, the third one is yet to come to pass. It could be exactly what we're talking about now. But God says to the nation of Israel, he said, now you're going to go into this strange land and you're going to be there how long? 400 years. Well, now turn over to Exodus, the 12th chapter, beginning verse 40. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelled in Egypt was 400 and what? 30 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, just out of curiosity, go back again. Don't keep your finger in there. Now go back to Genesis 15 one more time. Verse 13, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and they shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. He didn't say they'd be in the land 400 years, did he? He said they would serve them and be afflicted for 400 years. Over here we find in Exodus that they were there for 430 years. Now, I don't know if that means that Joseph was there with them for the first 30 years, and when Joseph died, then another king came up, who was afraid of the nation of Israel. And so for the next 400, isn't it amazing though? God said they were going to be afflicted for 400 years and they stayed there for 430 years. Now how many of you know that they weren't about to get out of there in 382 years or 398 years? God said, no, my timetable says you're going to be there for 400 years. I'm trying to get across to you that God has a timetable for your life and for mine. And we don't need to, James says when you're, when you're being persecuted, when you've got all kinds of pressures and all kinds of troubles, don't try to squirm out of them, but just let patience have its perfect work. God, like thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I give myself to you and I give the situation to you completely. I leave it in your hands, Lord, and I thank you ahead of time that you said you would make a way of escape. How many of you know that if Moses had tried to think for a thousand years how to get across that Red Sea, he wouldn't have made it? They had no facilities. They had no equipment. God had to make the way. He was not going to do it one year earlier. They had to go through all that terrible time when Moses was talking with Pharaoh and things got harder and harder and harder and harder. How many of you know that God saw all that? He saw them going through the times when they were being beaten, when their children were being put to death, and they thought, oh, how long? Dear God, help us. I mean, look at my babies have been killed. Where are you, God? Wait, where was he? He was right there. Jesus was right in the middle of the lake in the midst of the storm. I mean, he's there. Someone said, where was Jesus when my son died? And he said, exactly the same place he was when his son died. He didn't go anywhere. He was right there. But we have to say, this is the will of God concerning me. The will of God in Christ Jesus concerning me. Now, look at Psalm 105. Another illustration that God doesn't do things just in our own timing. You know, the scripture says these things are written for our admonition. Go to the Old Testament. He said, you see how I function, how I work, how I operate. Psalm 105, verse 17. Let's go to verse 16. David's talking about when Israel was in, in the land and the famine came. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them. He sent a man before I thought his brothers sent Joseph into Egypt. 
I thought they threw him in the pit and they sold him for a slave and they sent him into Egypt. Isn't that what you heard in Bible school, in Sunday school? That his brothers sold him as a slave, pulled him out of the pit and sold him as a slave? That isn't what David said. David said, God sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Until the time that the word that had been given to Joseph came. Now that means that when God gives the word, there's a certain time for that word to come. And God sets it. In the meantime, can't you imagine what went through Joseph's mind as he was thrown in a pit, first of all, then sold as a slave? And I'll tell you, when they sold him as slaves, they were treated like trash. Taken into Egypt, but everywhere he went, they could see that he was different from most of them, and they gave him special favor. And he was immediately brought right up into leadership in every situation he found himself in. And even when he was trying to do right and was mistreated and lied about and cast into prison, Instantly, those that were in charge of the prison saw that here was leadership. Again, they put him in charge of many things there in the prison. Then God had to finally remind one of the men who had gotten out after Joseph had interpreted his dream. Oh, there's a man in prison that can interpret dreams, and they called him up. You see, all that time that Joseph was in prison, can you imagine the, the torture he must have gone through in his mind? It was not like our prisons today, where they bring you, almost bring you your food in an air-conditioned situation with a television going, and you know, none of that. I mean, it was it was horrible conditions in those prisons in those days. And Joseph said, "Boy, can you imagine? Thanks a lot, Lord, that this is what it, you get for serving the Lord." I don't think he said that. Not from what I read. He was faithful to the Lord all the way through. It didn't make any difference. He was going to serve the Lord no matter what. But the scripture says until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. He was tested to see if he would stand. But God set a time and it wasn't immediate. Second Corinthians, the 12th chapter, in verse 7, Paul the apostle, he was talking about a man that went up into the third heaven and had this wonderful vision, experience. He didn't know if it was in the body or, or not. And he said, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather... Glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, I've heard many interpretations as to what this infirmity in the flesh was. Some people said it was an affliction in his eyes. So he said one place you would have plucked out your eyes. And others said, well, no, that is just like saying today I'd cut off my right arm for you and then there are others that say that it was a demon that went everywhere he went to stir up trouble whenever he preached. All I know, it was something he didn't want. It was something that was an affliction to him, something that caused him problems. And I mean, Paul the Apostle, if anybody had contact with God, it should have been Paul the Apostle, but the Lord says, no, Paul, stay. let us stay there. My grace is sufficient for you. And he said it was given, lest he should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation. In other words, have you ever prayed for someone and saw them healed? 
then walked away and began to feel pain in your own body? That's humbling. You see other people healed and then you have pain in your own body. Paul the Apostle went around and he laid hands on people and mighty miracles happened. A poisonous snake bit him and uh, shook it off in the fire and felt no effort. Man, here I'm God's man of power for this hour. Let me tell you. And then all of a sudden this infirmity comes on. And he was binding and casting out and confessing and all, all the rest of it. And God says, my grace is sufficient. Stand still. Just stay right there. By the way, the devil, he could have rebuked the devil all he wanted to. I want you to think about that for a moment. He could have rebuked the devil all he wanted to in that situation. But it was God that said, my grace is sufficient. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen. the third thing. First of all, he hears the afflicted. Secondly, he saves them in his own time. Thirdly, he delivers them out of all their troubles. Psalm chapter, Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them Deliver him out of most of them. There is no deliverance outside of God. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Now that's a good verse to put on your refrigerator door, remember. If you put the last part on there. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. But remember, he delivers them out of them all when he's ready to deliver us out of them all. See what I'm saying? Lord, why doesn't that job open up? Lord, why doesn't why don't the finances come in? Lord, why do, it gives you a good opportunity to just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Not grumbling, not complaining, not saying I'm so sick and tired of this manna. That's all I've had is manna, 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 fried, baked, boiled, every other way. Oh, I'm just so tired of manna. No, 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 no. Lord, thank you for your provisions for this day. Thank you for the strength you've given me for today. Thank you that you're going to continue to sustain me today. And then tomorrow, I'll thank you for tomorrow for the day, too. I thank you in the midst of it. And the Lord will deliver us out of them all. How many of you know there have been times when you thought, oh, how will I ever get through this? And you look back and somehow you got through it and you're still surviving. The Lord delivers you out of them all. He's promised to do that in his word. Look at Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15. Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. See the order there? First of all, come with thanksgiving. And then do his courts with thanksgiving. Into, I mean, do his prayers with thanksgiving. Into his courts with praise. Then, Fulfill your vows. If you've said you're going to do something, do it. If you've told the Lord you're going to do it, do it. Then call upon him in your trouble and he'll deliver you and he'll be glorified through that deliverance. Then lastly, he will uphold you. Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Verses 23 and 24 first. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, 
for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. For he is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Then over in verse 40. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Let me go back to verse 39, I'm sorry. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Scripture says that the Lord will uphold you. Chapter uh, Psalm 55, or our last verse, Psalm 55 and verse 22. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. We're living in a day and age when I see people doing like a man I heard about one time who was carrying this huge load on his back and thumbing a ride. And as the man pulled over in the truck and told him he would give him a ride into town, the man got in got in and pulled the big load in on top of his lap. And he said, well, don't put that on your lap. Just set it in the back of the truck. There's no sense in you having to carry it all the way. He says, no, sir, I wouldn't do that to you. He said, it's enough for you to have to pick me up without you having to carry my load, too. I'll carry my own load, thank you. That seems silly, doesn't it? But I've seen an awful lot of people who deal with the Lord in that same way. Lord, you saved me, but I'll carry the load, the rest of the load myself. And I, I've got all these responsibilities, all these burdens. Lord, I'm just gonna, and the Word of God says, casting all your care on Him because He cares for you. No, sir, Lord, I wouldn't do that to you. But first of all, you saved me, and I'm just so grateful you saved me. But I'll carry the rest of it, Lord. And silly. He says you'll uphold. And there's another place that says that the righteous. Though they be cast down seven times, they'll rise up again. The ungodly, when they fall, they're like on shale, they slide off into eternal destruction. The Lord says that even though we're cast down, the everlasting arms are under us. They'll uphold us and they'll protect us and they'll sustain us and they'll reinstate us. I say this because afflictions will come. The scripture says when the storms come, when the storm came, not if, when the storm comes. When the storm comes, God says these provisions are for us. And we need to cast ourselves totally upon the mercy of the Lord. We need to, to, to encourage ourselves in the Lord. In the midst of the hardest times, Lord, I don't know what you're trying to show me, but I'm open. Please teach me. Show me how I can glorify you in this situation. Thank you ahead of time, because I know you're going to make a way of escape. I know you've got the answer for me. I'm so thankful that because you have the answer, it's perfect. And when I look back, you're going to get all the praise and all the glory and all the honor for me. Because you promised never to leave me as an orphan. You know, when you realize these promises in the Word, when afflictions come, they don't, they don't leave that section. God is at work in me. Of course, God can do that which is good and perfect and right in my life. I'm thinking ahead of time, I'm being conformed through this experience. I can be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Made like him. Scripture says, tempted as he was tempted in all manner, like we, yet without sin. Jesus was tested. The Lord says, we're going to be tested and tried and proven. 
One of these days we're going to stand before him and it'll be worth it all. Good things for what? God's people. And we've, first of all, said it's good, a good thing for God's people to draw near to God. We've said it's good for God's people to give thanks to the Lord. We've said it's good for God's people to be afflicted. We've been talking about the affliction for some time. and I want to go on tonight and share with you another thing that the Lord has shown me in his word. He said it's good for God's people to be zealous. Would you look at Galatians, the fourth chapter with me, please? Paul was talking here in the fourth chapter of Galatians concerning the legalists or the Jewish believers that were coming to the Galatians and saying to them, you may say you believe in Jesus Christ, but if you're not circumcised also, you cannot be saved. There are some groups today that will tell you if you have not been baptized in water, by a certain method, you cannot be saved. Well, these are the Galatians that said, the Jewish believers who said, if you have not been baptized, I don't care how much you believe. I mean, if you have not been circumcised, I don't care how much you believe. You cannot be saved. And so they would come in after Paul had left Galatia. They had come in and they were, they were criticizing or cutting Paul down and trying to alienate the believers from Paul, who was the one who founded the church of Galatia. And so he was writing to them, and in verse 13, he says, You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first, and my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and have given them to me. That's like we'd say today, they would, would have done anything. Would have given you the shirt off of their back. And I am I therefore become your enemy, because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. He's saying these people are very zealous, and what they're actually trying to do is to draw you away, not honorably. He says they're not doing it honorably. Yea, they would exclude you, that ye might affect them. He's speaking now of the Gentiles. He's saying they're saying to you Gentiles, you're not even in the church. You're not even a part of the body of Jesus Christ. They were very zealous in their ways toward them, trying to win them over, not to find out if they're in the faith, but telling them they're not in the faith. Verse 18, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. In other words, in your faith and in your practice as saints, it's good to be zealous, not only when I am present with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us in just a few words here powerful statements that can transform our lives. But it's good that he's zealously affected always in a good thing. When we talk about zeal, Vine in his book, in a book on Greek words, says it's an uncompromising or loyal partisan or supporter. Somebody who's uncompromising in their support of something. Or to take a very warm interest in something. That is one who is zealous. Now, turn to Titus, the second chapter, with me, beginning with verse 11. For the grace of God, now again, I, I've shared this with you before, but I want to emphasize it again. Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God, it doesn't say for legalism, it doesn't say for bondage, it doesn't say for Old Testament law. For the grace of God, I want you to understand that what Paul's getting ready to tell them now is the message of grace, it's not the law. The grace of God that bringeth 
salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, here's true type Bible teaching he's saying now, teaching us that denying or abrogating or renouncing or forsaking ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to be sober and godly in the next world. He says, true grace message says that right now, in this present world, we are to live, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, righteously, and godly. And the second thing is looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself. Now he's saying that we were dirty, that we were defiled, but we're going to be purified unto himself, a peculiar people. Now that word peculiar that we sing about a lot of times, you're a peculiar uh, generation, that word means to be personally owned. We're going to be a personally owned people. Zealous, and the word zealous again, I told you, it means to have a very warm interest in or to burn or to glow with the heat like molten metal. Not just be good, not just be honest, not just be upright, but to be zealous of good works. Now, let me emphasize or try to clarify something here. Clapping my hands in a service is not being zealous. Raising my hands to the Lord is not being zealous. In other words, anybody can clap their hands and anybody can raise their hands. How many of you have seen that bumper sticker, if you love Jesus, honk? Another one said, if you love Jesus, tithe. Anybody can honk. What they're saying is just because a man can honk does not mean that he means loves Jesus. Just because a person can clap their hands doesn't mean, even if people learn choreography and dance on the platform, all over the platform, and do all sorts of, of acts like that, that is not zeal. Don't misunderstand that. Virtually anybody with enough training could get up and dance. Hugging people during a service, morning service, hugging seven people, that's not zeal. Fasting. How many of you know fasting is not zeal? There are many people that fast for the wrong reasons, trying to get something out of God. It's not necessarily evidence that they're zealous. Look at Luke, the sixth chapter, what Jesus said to his followers. Beginning with verse 46. And why call ye me, what? Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He's like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon the house, that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. He that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. What did he say there? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them. That's evidence of zeal. First John, the second chapter. Look at it quickly. I want to set a foundation so you'll understand what constitutes zeal when the Lord says it's good for believers to be zealous. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
Now let me read that verse to you again out of the Living Bible. Someone may say, I'm a Christian. I'm on my way to heaven. I belong to Christ. But if he doesn't do what Christ's, Christ tells him to do, he is a liar. That's powerful, isn't it? He can say he's saved. He can say he's on his way to heaven. He can say all these things. But if he doesn't do what Christ tells him to do, Jesus said, that man's a liar. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. I was reading a magazine and noticed a, a list of A.W. Tozer, the former Christian Missionary Alliance evangelist, his statements during the years of his ministry on the subject of obedience. And I thought it'd be interesting for you to hear a few of his quotes on obedience. There is what William James called a certain blindness in human beings that prevents us from seeing what we do not want to see. This, along with the direct work of the devil himself, may account for the fact that the doctrine of obedience is so largely neglected in modern religious circles. When we talk about being zealous, we're talking about being obedient. That God expects, another time he says, God expects us to be obedient children is admitted, of course, but it is seldom stressed sufficiently to get action. He said, many people seem to feel that their obligation to obey has been discharged by the act of believing on Jesus Christ at the beginning of their Christian life. Now, I hope you'll hear that. He says here, many people feel, now he's talking about the church, and this was not just written yesterday. Many people in the church feel that their obligation to, to obey has been discharged by the act of believing, well, I'm a Christian, I'm in Jesus, I'm going to go to heaven no matter what. And they don't have to be obedient now because they believed in Jesus Christ at the beginning of their life. He said, we should remember that the will is the seat of true religion in the soul. Nothing genuine has been done in a man or a woman's life until his or her will has been surrendered in active obedience to Jesus Christ. We can say all we want to, but the evidence has to be obedience. He said, it was disobedience that brought about the ruin of the human race. It is the obedience of faith that brings us back again into divine favor. He said, a mere passive surrender may be no surrender at all. Any real submission to the will of God must include willingness to take orders from that time on. That's why Jesus said you have to be willing to forsake all that you have to be his disciple. He said, when the heart is irrevocably committed to receiving and obeying orders from the Lord himself, a specific work has been done, but not until then. Now, the Alliance would call that sanctification again, when you totally submit to the Lord, will of Christ. He said, a world of confusion and disappointment results from trying to believe without obeying. This puts us in a, the position of a bird trying to fly with one wing. Trying to believe and not obey is just like a bird trying to fly with one wing. In Numbers, the 25th chapter, we see a good example of zealousness. An interesting story here. What had actually happened is, you remember when Balaam, the prophet, went up on the mountain with the Midianites and they asked him to curse the nation of Israel as they were coming into Canaan, on their journey into Canaan, I mean. They asked him to curse them and he got up and every time he'd get up he'd bless them because the Lord wouldn't let him curse them. So later on he went down to Israel and told them he didn't curse them and Israel didn't pay him for it. And then the evidence, evidently, he went back up to them and told them how they could cause Israel to fall anyway because he didn't get anything out of it. 
He told them that they would intermingle and get the children of Israel to sin against God, that God would judge the nation and that they would be destroyed. In chapter 25, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredoms with the daughters of Moabites. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself to Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And so Moses told the people, told the men, the leaders of Israel, to take all the men that had gone over to Baal Peor and to slay them and hang them up until night and then bury them. What had happened, they would they sent their most beautiful ladies over to entice the men of Israel to go over and worship their god, Shemosh. And in order to do that, you'd sprinkle ashes, I mean, some incense on the altar, and all the young ladies of, of the Moabites would offer themselves physically to whoever would come to worship their god. They called them temple priestesses. They were actually uh, harlots. They were for the church, for the not the church, but for the uh, false religion. They would offer their bodies, and so the, the men of Israel got excited and went over there and got involved in this situation. And when Moses was judging them, or God was judging them through Moses, verse 6, And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the tabernacle of the congregation. In the midst of this time of, of repentance, this man boldly walked right out in front of Moses and walked into his tent with this woman. And the Hebrew word where it talks about them going into the tent, it, it describes they went into the bedroom section of the tent, blatantly right in front of everybody. And when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. This was a purifying judgment that, that Phineas made when he went in and slew the, the man and the woman in the tent. And in doing so, by that judgment that he uh, bestowed upon this couple, it stopped the exterminating judgment that God was getting ready to do. He had already started a plague amongst the people. And verse 9 says, And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. Now, I'm not recommending that when you get zealous, you go out and kill people that are sinners. But Phineas knew that in, that in the Old Testament nation of Israel, where it was a theocracy, where God was in charge, that God demanded the death penalty of adulterers. God demanded the death penalty of those that would sin blatantly like this. Phineas, verse 11, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was what? Zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God. In the Hebrew, it's actually clearer, more clear. It says, he possessed the zeal of God. Is that interesting? The first sign that a person is zealous is that they have a holy hatred of sin. Now, God called this zeal. In fact, he said, it's my kind of zeal. We can go on down there a little bit further. It says, 
Now the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that or that was slain with the Midianitish woman, was Zimri, and the son of Salu, the prince of the chief house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianitish woman that was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. Now, by the way, you'll find out over in First Kings thirty-one eight that Zur was one of the five Midian kings. She was the daughter of one of the Midianite kings. He was head over people and of a chief house of, in Midian. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Vex the Midianites and smite them. Expiate divine judgment upon them because of what they have done to try to cause the nation of Israel to fall. It was the Midianites here. And for they vex you with their wiles, wherewith they have beguiled you in the matter of Peor, that's their God that I was talking about, their, their worship, I mean, in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a prince of Midian, their sister, which was slain in the day of the plague for Peor's sake. Now, Phineas was the only one that got upset enough that he went in in his zeal for the things of God and thrust a javelin through both of them. And God says that, of course, was purifying judgment, but it stopped the executing judgment of God because it appeased God when he saw the anger, his anger being manifested toward that sin. So I just want to share with you, whenever you and I want to be what God says is good for us, we will recognize a hatred for sin have a real zeal and anger for sin. When I was at this art show the other day, I want to tell you something. In my spirit, something rose up, and they were watching my face to see what would happen, and I wanted to make sure that I just didn't become some screaming person. So I would just ask pointed questions, and then I would say, you, you can see that this has nothing to do with that, that's a value. You describe to me what those articles down there could possibly be saying that is of good. I felt rather than berating these poor people that are in charge there, even though they may have had something to get that in there, I would rather have those who are trained in that area legally and so forth to go in and do what has to be done to get it taken care of. But inside, I have uh, just an abhorrence because I know what's going to happen in the days ahead to our children and our grandchildren if this horrible plague isn't stopped in our nation. And if they get their will and way within a few months or a couple of years, what I'm saying right now would open me up to being put in jail. If you'll read my book that I wrote seven or eight years ago, you'll find that I said within five to ten years, the time's going to come when they'll be using the same excuses within the church that they're for homosexual community as they're now using for divorced and remarried people. Well, it's only been seven years. It may happen within the next three years, but I really felt in my heart that that's what was on the way. But again, all it does is make me look up and in the meantime say, Lord, don't let me become desensitized to sin. Help me to hate sin. Have a zeal against sin. Get angry when I see sin come. Not at the sinner, but at the sin. I want to ask you something. Does sin make you angry? I am absolutely devastated sometimes, and I am I'm just I shake my head in wonder. When we were talking a while ago about what's happening in the schools today, I can remember when I used to get made stay after school because I would be chewing gum or uh, talking in class. Now they're talking about 65,000 teachers criminally assaulted this past year. When we think of the diet that many of the parents today allow their young people to devour day in and day out watching violent television shows, and I, I'm still just staggered when somebody comes to me and says, did you know that some of our teenagers went over to this R-rated movie this last week? No, I had no idea. What are they going to those for? Other parents don't seem to care if they go to them. 
I just want to tell you something. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You open yourself to that kind of filth, and before long, your mind becomes cluttered with that filth, and before long, you become desensitized to it, and you start thinking, well, that's kind of fuddy-duddy that the pastor get upset over something like that. I want to tell you something. We are what we eat. And if they do it in moderation now, what do you think your grandkids are going to, the grandkids are going to do? And the great-grandkids. I like what the man said in the film here Sunday night. It just takes one generation to become a heathen nation. And we finally get to the place where we throw out God's standard. You see, the minute you say that, somebody says, boy, that pastor is old-fashioned. I mean, he's fuddy-duddy. He just isn't with the times. I really don't intend to be with the times because the Word of God tells me that more and more wicked men are going to become more wicked and therefore we have to be stronger in becoming righteous and upright before God and hate sin. Revelation 3.19, the second thing, to be zealous is to repent of our past sins. Be zealous about repenting of our past sins. Revelation 3, verse 19. Now, John here, Jesus is speaking through John on the Isle of Patmos. We begin actually with verse 14 because he's talking to the church of Laodicea, the Laodiceans. I personally believe that these are ages of the church. I believe that we're in the Laodicean period right now. If you don't believe it, read it and then look at the church today and you'll see that we're in the Laodicean period. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Who's that? Jesus, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. What would you say about many churches today? Are we cold or hot? Now, may I just say this? Please understand how I say this. The amount of noise we make during a service does not indicate heat or cold. The way a church must be determined whether they're hot or cold must be their obedience, not what they possess. Verse 16, So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, I think I've shared this with you before. I'll share it again. Jesus took the different churches in the book of Revelation that were present in that day, and when he wrote to them, he used things that they alone would understand. And the church of Laodicea was in an area where they had hot springs. Years ago, Beverly and I went up into, when we were in Colorado, went up to Linwood Springs, right after, about a year after we'd been there, in the wintertime, and there was a hotel that was built right around a hot spring, and they had a swimming pool, and when you'd sit down in the one end of the pool, there was a hundred and some degree water coming and rushing out of that rock. All around, and it just felt wonderful, especially when we were out there in that swimming pool, it was snowing. And boy, we stayed clear down to where just our ears were just above the water, but I mean, it felt so good to sit in that hot water. But you didn't want to get that water in your mouth. So full of sulfur. And this is what they had around Laodicea. And he said to them, I would you were hot or cold, because if you're one of those, it's That'd be fine, but if you weren't, I'd want to, if actually I'd vomit you out. And you see, with the type of sulfur water they had there, if they were going to drink that water, they had to either, either have it hot or they had to have it cold. If you tried to drink that water tepid, it would actually nauseate you in that day. And that's what Jesus was saying. He says, you're just like that water. If you'd be hot or cold, I could put up with you one way. If you're hot, that please me. If you're cold, at least I could begin to move you and show you that you're cold. Because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing 
and knowest that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich in white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. That white raiment has to do with purity, righteousness. Then that thy, the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with the eye salve as thou, that thou mayest see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten. There it is now, what does it say? Be zealous therefore and what? Repent of what? Repent of saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knoweth and repent of your, your lukewarmness. He says if you want to really be zealous, be zealous by repenting of your, your sinful condition. So the first thing is, that we want to zealous is to hate sin and secondly is when we see their sin in our life, to get zealous means to turn away from it, act on it, begin to do something. It's good for God's people to be zealous. But there's some good things, exciting things that God shows us here in his word. And I don't know about you, I want to know every good thing that God has for me as a believer because he said if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses you from all sin. And my question is, how zealous is the church today? And I really believe that until the church becomes zealous for the things of God, and I talk about, I'm talking about the, the body of Christ all over, until we really become zealous in our hatred of sin, in separation from the world, and willingness to repent of our sins and say, God, back there I was closer to you, and back there I was more committed to you, and back there I did this and that, and, I, and I've gotten away from that. God, forgive me, I'm going to get back where I was. I want to see him do a work in all the churches around here. May I just share with you again? We're not alone. Most of the evangelical pastors I've been talking to tell me, we're really going through it. We've got problems like we've never had before. We have things that are just tearing us asunder. Talked to the secretary today of the church and said the pastor is almost completely exhausted and his wife doesn't look like she's going to be able to stay in the ministry very much longer. The pressure is just too great. I don't say that there. Sound pessimistic. I'm just simply saying these are all symptoms of what we're talking about here. I'm rich, I need nothing. Jesus said, You don't know that they're wretched and poor and blind and miserable. You need to repent, get jealous, get excited, begin to glow, say, By the grace of God, I'm going to get back. It will be everything I should be for the Lord. As you stop and think, how many zealous families do you know that attend churches in the area? I'm talking about really zealous families. How many of you know families that were more zealous five years ago than they are today? And then I hear the admonition of the book of Hebrews that says, all the more as you see that day approaching, all the more get together, all the more get together, fellowship all the more. I'm not saying this because you're here. I'm simply saying these are the signs that we're looking at, the fact that we are in the last days before Jesus comes again. Jesus made the statement, when I come again, will I find anything? That doesn't sound like dominion theology to me, does it you? Will I find anything when I come again? My heart cries out, Lord, I trust you'll find faith in me. I don't want to be like Peter's, yeah, Lord, I won't forsake you. But I know that it, it, it's possible for any of us to turn our back on the Lord. But I really want to say, Lord Jesus, I want to have faith when you come back. I want to be where you want me to be when you come back. Doing what you want me to do when you come out. That's as good for us to be zealous.